Heavenly Father, we just thank you for uh, this day, the Lord's Day, that we can come together and assemble and encounter you in holy worship. That's what we long for. That's what we uh, live for as believers, to encounter you and to experience you. And so now, Lord, I pray that you'll give us a taste of the truth of your transfiguration this morning as we continue in our service from the singing from the reading. I pray that you will, uh, that, that your word will speak to our hearts. And as we continue the Eucharist and the, uh, things that follow God, we give this service, continue to give this service over into your hand in your holy name. We pray. Amen. So, uh, this is from Matthew 17. Hear the word of the Lord regarding the transfiguration. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James, his brother, and led them up to a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. And behold, there appeared to, some, appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with them. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we're here. If you wish, I will make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one of the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. So, uh, you know, how, how many, you know, I, I was raised in West Tennessee. I, I have to admit, I, I'm not extremely the most well-traveled person in the world. Uh, but we would go to the mountains every now and then, and I love to go to the mountains. Uh, how many of y'all like to go to the mountains at some point? Yeah, it's great, isn't it? Whether it's the Smoky Mountains or you want to go way out west, go to the Rocky Mountains or wherever. Uh, the mountains are fun. They're different. They're awe-inspiring. They, you go and you see them, and it just reminds you so much of the glory of God. Well, mountains in the times of Scripture, and really even today in some respects, were considered very sacred places. They were considered places that people encountered God on those mountains. Uh, you know, I remember going with a guy in college. He said, hey, we're going to go to the mountains. I said, okay. So we hopped in his car and we, we drove uh, to Middle Tennessee and saw the little, the little cliffs, you know, as you're driving east. And he thought that was the mountains. I'm like, man, that's not the mountains. You know, you got to go, go all the way to, to East Tennessee and see the Grand Smokies, you know. And then people out west will see, well, that's not really the mountains, you know. You got to go all the way to the Rocky Mountains if you really want to see the mountains, you know. And so... So, but, uh, and they are quite majestic. But. So the transfiguration, uh, this is one of those passages that people read and they, you know, maybe read through as they're reading their Bible during the year or wherever or whenever. And, 
it's kind of a mysterious passage, this, uh, this incident, because you read about all these other miracles, such as Jesus healing a leper or Jesus uh, healing the blind. And there's a object of his miracle. He's, play, he's doing something with someone and healing them or raising Lazarus from the dead or doing some kind of a miracle that affects someone. But this miracle is different. This miracle doesn't seem to really have, you know, it's like a sentence without a subject. It doesn't really have a, uh, a person that the miracle is done toward in terms of like a healing or something like that. The miracle instead is entirely focused on Christ in every way. It's a Christ-centered miracle. Unlike a lot of the other miracles in Scripture, this one is entirely focused on Christ. Now, as you know, other things happen here. Uh, there are other figures that appear. We'll, we'll talk about that here in just a minute. But this is, this is an unusual miracle in that regard, and people sometimes don't really know what to do with this passage because of that. It's, it's just a little different. So the Scriptures say after six days, Jesus took uh, with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and he took them to a high mountain by themselves. So some of the greatest and most profound events in all of Scripture happen on a mountain. That's where so much of the faith that we hold dear has taken place. The events that we think about, some of the greatest events in the Bible. Uh, think about it for a second. The giving of the law, or well... Let's even go back further uh, before we get to that. Let's go back even further and let's go back to the uh, let's go back to the burning bush. Okay, which happens as Moses climbs, you see, climbs up to the burning bush. Let's go back to Abraham, who the scriptures say went to Mount Moriah in order to perform a sacrifice, and God tested him. As far as sacrificing his son. That happened on Mount Moriah. The resting place of the, of the ark that Noah and his family were in. The resting place is said to have ended up on a mountain in the scriptures. Um, and Mount Carmel. Another case. Many of you know that story because that's a great story. About how the prophets of Elijah. Uh, excuse me. The prophets of Baal and then Elijah. Uh, had that showdown up there, and that's on Mount Carmel. And of course, God brings the fire down and consumes the sacrifice, consumes uh, Elijah's sacrifice. Then you have in the New Testament, you have pictures of mountains in a sense too. You have the Temple Mount, which of course had had two temples built on it. The original temple, and then after that temple got destroyed uh, by Nebuchadnezzar, a new temple was built on it, which was later destroyed in 70 A.D., uh, but the Temple Mount remains to this day and it's considered sacred ground because the temples were built on it. Uh, Jesus gave a very famous sermon on a mount. So, uh, and that was a high place in Matthew chapter 5 where that's recorded, 5 through 7. He, and he went up on the mountain and everybody could hear him. and He was elevated on the mountain. Here we go. Again, the people meet God on the mountain. This time, they're meeting Jesus himself. 
as he is giving them the Sermon on the Mount and speaking to them. No less (coughs) real than God speaking to the people from Mount Sinai. No less real than God speaking to Moses on the mountain with a burning bush. This time they're, they're encountering the incarnated God, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ. And he's speaking to them from the mountain. Uh, the hill of Golgotha, you know, an elevated place. And of course, in, in the book of Revelation, uh, if you go to the end of the book, John sees the new Jerusalem from a, from a mountain. He sees it from a mountain. And the new Jerusalem is even higher than the mountain because it's coming down out of heaven. So even the, even the earthly mountain does not compare in, in height and majesty to the new Jerusalem that is coming. So we see mountains all in Scripture. Uh, so much so that sometimes I don't, I don't know that we even really notice them. We, we don't really think about it, but they're everywhere. They're everywhere in the Bible. You, you can read about mountains and things that happen on mountains. And nothing in Scripture is by accident. Uh, nothing, n- nothing is written there as just a coincidence. Uh, if, if Scripture says that so-and-so went up to a mountain to do this, there's something important about the fact they went up to a mountain. There's something to that, or it wouldn't be in Scripture. It wouldn't be there. So we need to take that into consideration. In Isaiah chapter 2, it says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the, excuse me, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established that's at the highest of mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. So you see again, scripture, uh, how the mountain of God is important. And the mountain of God isn't just a physical mountain. It is also a figurative mountain. Mount Zion is figurative of Christ himself in, in Scripture. Now, um, we all encounter God on mountaintops, whether we realize it or not. Mountaintop experiences. And those are the times that we kind of expect to encounter God. We kind of expect to encounter God in the high points of our life spiritually. When we're... When we're rolling through life in a great spiritual way and, and, and uh, just really walking with God and having that experience. And we've, we encounter God sometimes. But then, you know, we come back down the mountain and we end up in the valley. And we end up in a low place. And we may not feel the presence of God as seriously there in those times of our lives because it's the low place. And we get bogged down in the mud and the grime of life. And yet God is no less present there than he is on the mountain. He's no less present in the valley. He's still just as present there as anywhere else. Um, And that's something we have to accept by faith. So no matter what you're going through, no matter what valley you're experiencing right now, no matter how things are for you in this maybe a very troubling time of your life, God's still there. He's still there and he's with you. And if you are his child and you are his, his born-again child, that he is with you. You may not feel him. You may not feel the emotions of a present Christ walking with you every day. But it's not about your feelings. It's about faith. He's walking with you. 
every day. And you embrace that by faith. And in time, you'll go back uphill. You'll go back uphill. It's hard to to do that in a moment. But Christ promises us, ultimately, that our faith is one that will be on Mount Zion with Christ in the end of the state. The mountains, here's another aspect of, of, of the transfiguration. And also, this happens in the mountain transfiguration in a sense. And it always happens on the mountains in Scripture. And one of those things is that every time a mountain shows up in Scripture and people meet God on that mountain, there is also fire present. And we talked about fire a couple of weeks ago in Sunday school, which I thought was really good. Uh, that Connor led us through. But think about, think about it for a second. Uh, what, what does Moses encounter on the mountain? A bush that's burning. Burning bush. He encounters fire, and God speaks to him from the fire. Um, now, some of these aren't always as obvious. I'll show you in a minute. But another more obvious one was the Mount Carmel experience where God sends fire to burn up the sacrifice uh, and in traumatic fashion of Elijah. Noah ends up stopping his ark, or he doesn't stop it. The ark stops on a mountaintop. Do you, do you, does anybody remember what Noah does when he gets out of the ark? Go ahead, you talk. Yeah, gives praise. And he builds an altar, correct, to give praise. He builds an altar, and an altar means that he built a fire. He built a fire on the mountaintop. So there was fire yet even then uh, in this case. All these cases on the mountain, there's usually fire involved. And, of course, we know from the scriptures in Exodus how fire was up on the mountain that... that, uh, Moses and the people saw and it scared them and they didn't want to go near it because of the fire they saw in the smoke. Um, so there's usually fire in these cases. On Mount Moriah, Abraham takes Isaac up there. And he's going to go up there and he, you know, God, he's, he's interpreted that God wants him to kill Isaac to make him as the sacrifice. And we think about, you know, in our... Our Sunday school pictures we saw growing up, we think about Abraham with the knife in his hand and how God stops him and everything. But he had something else in his hand too, if you've ever read it. He had fire. He had fire in his hand. It specifically says that. So he went up on the mountain and he's got his, he's got his, uh, his knife, but he's also got fire for the sacrifice. And of course, God provides the ram and Isaac was obviously not meant to be the one to be sacrificed. But he tested Abraham, as the scriptures say. Abraham passed that test. <clears throat> and there was a fire on Mount Moriah. And that was the pleasing aroma to God. The sacrifice that God provided the ram, you see. That's the Christological picture, by the way. If you haven't picked up on that. God provided the ram. Just like he provided our ram. He provided our sacrifice we didn't do it. We couldn't pull it off. We couldn't give the most precious thing in our entire lives. It, wouldn't, it would fall short. But God provided. God provided his, his son, Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice. And that, of course, 
that story in the Old Testament points to that, that spiritual truth that we see in, in, in our faith. Um, the temple mounts, again, there were temples that had been built on the temple mounts. There was fires going there all the time, so that was normal. Um, now, let's get back to the Mount of Transfiguration. I've kind of chased rabbits a little bit here with the mountains and fires and all that. But in this case, on the Mount of Transfiguration, the fire is Jesus himself. He's, he's exploding in glory and a glorious fire and a glorious light. And so bright so that, that it's, it's frightening. And um, the scriptures say, you know, his face looked like the, the sun, which of course we associate with fire and heat. Um, you know, his, his raiments became, his garments became white, whiter than anything you can imagine. <clears throat> the fire is Jesus himself in this case. He is the ultimate real fire. More holy, the holiest fire of all holy fires is Jesus Christ. Um, more so than any other holy fire that ever burned in, in history. And there's been a lot of places, there, there's, there's places on earth today where you go and these temples, um, various religions, temples, things, they'll have an eternal flame, which basically means they'll have a, a hole in the ground and there's natural gas coming out of it and they'll keep it burning eternally and never, never flush it out. And, and that's holy to them because it never goes out. But it's, it's not the fire of Christ. It's not the fire of Christ. Christ is the true fire that is eternal. Um, in Hebrews chapter 12, 28 and 29, lest you, lest you wonder if the idea of associating fire with Christ is legitimate. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. In 2 Thessalonians 1.7, God is described as returning in flaming fire. The Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. And if you look at the, the, the wording in that passage, the Greek, you know, the English translations, you could read it, unfortunately, the Lord is revealed from heaven with his angels in flaming fire. No, it should be, the correct translation should be the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, comma, with his angels, comma, in flaming fire. Meaning Christ returns in flaming fire with his angels. You see in that passage. So, fire is a very important thing. And of course, you can think back, I'm sure, I'm sure your wheels are turning and you're thinking about, okay, you know, the pillar of fire in, in the Exodus experience. God manifests himself in fire there too. And he manifested himself in the cloud. Uh, so God has, God has used fire throughout history. Fire, all these things in creation point to him. They point to him. They're about pointing to him. Um, fire captivates us anyway because it's kind of a mystery, you know, combustion of things. It's, it's mysterious. You get transfixed by it when you're looking at it. It looks unhuman. It looks like it's alive, you know, flames coming up like that. The next thing that we see here, well, one of, one of the two things here we see in this passage that, that are a change, one of them is the face of Christ. 
the very face of Jesus. And this reminds us, or at least it did me, it reminded me of how when you remember when Moses went up to the mountain and, he, and while he was up there and he came back down, his face was changed and everybody noticed it. Everybody's like, what happened to you? <laughs> he comes back down the mountain. <clears throat> this is this, this light that comes out of Jesus' face, shining face, uh, is it, it, it affected Moses when he met with God too. And what that, what that reveals to the disciples, whether they got it or not, is that they were encountering Yahweh on that Mount of Transfiguration. They were encountering God just like Moses encountered God on Mount Sinai. It, it was the same presence, you see, the same light, the same glory that uh, they experienced. Over and over, we see this is a description of what Jesus looks like in glory, his blazing, shining face. For in Revelation, it says, In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a, wrong, a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. And it goes on. <clears throat> but then as you read on in verse 16, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This is Jesus described in Revelation. As we will see him. As we will experience him. So what we see in Scripture in Matthew and Luke and the Transfiguration is just a taste of the way that we're going to see Christ. If you ever have somebody ask you or you ever ask, what does Jesus look like in heaven? Well, there's a pretty good description of him right here. That's what he looks like in heaven. That's what we're going to experience when we see him. <clears throat> and this is completely this, this, uh, this glory of Christ through his face blazing like that. This is a divine thing. It can't be replicated by parlor tricks or some kind of a, you know, a, certainly without technology or something like that. I mean, this is the first century and something like that, you know, if, if somebody walked in this room and their face started lit up like that, that's not a trick. I mean, you can't really, you can't make that happen. Uh, the one whose face can shine is Christ. And he can make another fa- another's face shine. And he can make another's face shine. Jesus is the light of life. And that light is from his countenance. His countenance. And it spreads to his people. His people are affected by that. The face of Christ is associated with salvation. Salvation. Because in Psalm 80 verse 7 it says, Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. We have to have Christ's face shine upon us. That's what we want. And that happens in salvation. Christ shines upon us. The Holy Spirit. He comes into our lives and we experience the glory of God in that moment. Now, it might not be something you physically see with your eyes, but it's the the glory of God falls on you in a salvific and 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 amazing, miraculous way. So the face of Christ is associated with salvation. Without the incarnation, 
the face of God is deadly. Right? Remember what happened when they, you know, when people were talked about going and look at God and turn their face away from him because they were scared to look upon him because it would kill them. But because we have the incarnation, we have Christ, we can look upon the face of God. He is the image of the invisible God. And therefore we look upon him, which is looking upon God. He's the way we do that. All right, one, we're, we're getting to a close here. Let's quickly talk about the fact that, that uh, Jesus' garments were like, uh, the whitest thing that you could ever see. Uh, you know, there's that power of glory comes out from his garments too. Uh, Jesus, Jesus has garments. The only time he didn't have garments was when he was on the cross. Even when he was in the, uh, even when he was in the manger, he was wrapped in swaddling clothes. He had garments then. So Jesus always is dressed in garments, a robe or, or some sort of sash or something. He wears garments. And his garments are part of who he is. You can't have Jesus without his garments because they're, they're integral to what he is. It's just like you can't, you're not supposed to be able to see a king without his robes, a king without his garments. A priest would not be a priest if he's not wearing priestly garments going into the Holy of Holies on our behalf. Uh, it would be, it would have been a absolute uh, Travesty, a, a terrible, destructive thing for a priest to enter the Holy Holies unprepared in terms of attire. So Jesus is our priest and he's our king, and therefore his garments represent that. Revelation describes him as having a robe dipped in blood as he returns. And that robe dipped in blood is his, his kingly garment, you see, coming in glory. Um, power goes out from his garment. Psalm 102 says, O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. Covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. That's from the book of Psalms. White and luminous garments clothe the righteous and they clothe the divine and angelic beings. And when we are in presence of God, when we leave this life, we are given white garments too in the presence of Christ. We are also given white garments, which is an amazing thing. Now, um, quickly, Moses and Elijah show up here, which is uh, an amazing miracle. But you also have to realize that Moses and Elijah are the uh, foundations of the Hebrew faith. Moses, uh, you know, the entire Jewish faith that uh, Jesus was a part of, the religious community, was sort of based around these guys. So Moses, uh, you know, was the law, associated with the law, and Elijah was the prophets. So you had Moses showing up, and you had the prophets showing up. You had the law, and you had the prophets appearing right there by Jesus. And at first... um, The disciples are like, well, this is great. He's, um, you know, here we we finally physically, physically see with our own eyes the pillars of the faith we grew up with, the disciples. But it wasn't to be. They see them, but what happens? They don't see them long. 
they confer with they confer with Jesus and they're talking with Jesus as if Jesus is somebody for them to talk to and you know for them to get advice from and then suddenly the disciples pass out and who's waking them up Jesus puts his hand on them Moses and Elijah aren't there anymore they're gone because the only thing that mattered after it all was all said and done was being in the presence of Christ. It's the only thing that mattered. It didn't matter to be in the presence of Elijah. It didn't matter to be in the presence of Moses. They were the, those, those men were there to point to our Lord and Savior Christ. That's what they existed for. And so this was a moment where these uh, blessed three individuals, these disciples, got to see how Jesus superseded the law and the prophets in an incredibly, um, an incredibly visible way, in a way that, that was amazing, I would think. But ultimately, God commands that Jesus be the one to be listened to, as Moses and as Elijah did. But they, they disappear, and ultimately, the one to listen to is Christ himself. He's the one, he's the only one that matters Ultimately, all of that and all the law and all the prophecies are to be interpreted through Jesus Christ. He didn't do away with those things, but he fulfilled them. He filled them full. In a sense, fulfilled them. He filled them full. All right, let me finish on this. Later on, years later, one of those disciples that was there wrote a letter and he described this event and uh, talked about it you know I'm sure thinking back on how this happened when he and John and James were there up up on that that mountain seeing this amazing event and he wrote and that that disciple was Peter and so in his second epistle that he wrote he said we did not follow cleverly devised myths we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, we didn't make this up. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw it, Peter's saying. We were eyewitnesses of majesty. When we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Lamps, by the way, are made with fire to shine. Like a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone else's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of Christ, we might say. So Peter says, look, we saw this. We saw this happen, and we heard that message from heaven that says, this is my son, listen to him. The prophetic word here is like a lamp with fire shining in the darkness until this day. Now, I'd say there's a good possibility that most people in this room know Christ 
and you, you know Him as your, as, your, as your Savior, and you walk with Him. Some of you may not be. Some of you may not know Christ. And, and I'm here to tell you from firsthand experience that the best thing you will ever do in your entire life is accept Him and bring Him into your life and make Him your Savior. Let Him take your life and live your life by Him and through Him. And you will have eternal life in doing that. You'll have eternal life as He's promised. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And as John chapter 3, uh, 16 tells us, um, he, has come, he came and died on the cross for us. And the promises of Scripture, promises of Scripture is that Jesus wants to save you and He wants to be your Savior. He wants to be someone in your life that you can count on. Not just in this life, but for all eternity. The eternal nature of your entire life is at stake if you have not accepted Christ in your life. So I want to encourage you to do that. I want to encourage you if you're feeling the Holy Spirit freaking you in these matters to follow that. Not to ignore it, but to keep on seeking it out. And the Holy Spirit will continue pricking you. And the Holy Spirit will lead you into a place. And if you ever want to discuss these matters, you're welcome to come to any of us elders here at Christ Community Church. Or probably a number of men in this church. And we can talk to you about it. Some of you have been walking with Christ for many years. But you just need to see the fire of Christ in your life. You just need to see some, you just need to see that fire well up within you again. And the way to do that, the way to do that is to tarry back closer to Christ. To tarry to Him, to walk through the, to the mountain and walk through the valleys with Him. But the way to do that is to get in His Holy Scriptures, to read the Holy Scriptures, to pray daily and exercise your spiritual disciplines the way that, the way that we're meant to do. We're all guilty of not doing that enough. But I just want to encourage you to do that more. I want to encourage you to make that a, a daily part of your life. Again, if you've kind of fallen by the wayside. I've fallen by the wayside doing it many times. So it's a reminder for us all, myself included. The Lord bless you. Thank you for hearing the word of God.